following podcast is sponsored in part by the Blue Ridge Institute for Theological Education and Birmingham Theological Seminary. For more information about these institutions, please visit their websites at bright-va.org. That's B-R-I-T-E-V-A.org or bts.education. And now, here is Larger for Life, a podcast on the Westminster Larger Catechism. Welcome back to the Larger for Life. Uh, we've got a pretty good question. I mean, they're all good questions. Trying to choose the goodest question is like trying to choose your favorite child when it comes to the Larger Catechism. Uh, I am one of your hosts, Stephen Spindenweber, pastor at Westminster Presbyterian Church, and joined by everybody except Derek Bright today. Uh, Derek is actually, he had this hit song on YouTube, and he has since hit the trail and is doing lots of open-air concerts. You know who we're talking about, his doppelganger. But today, we've got with us Sean Morris of Covenant PCA in Oak Ridge, Tennessee. Good morning from Rocky Top. Are you going to sing Rocky Top? Uh, that's Can you sing it yet? That's the question. Like, I don't know what that I, you're actually a pastor until you know it by heart. What I just said about seven seconds ago is the full extant knowledge that I have of UT football. That's it. All right. Oh, wow. Okay. Um, you, you, you might be getting some... Uh, you know, hate messages in your inbox. Uh, They've got some colors. I think their colors are orange and white. Okay, so there's two things I know. You are, you're ripping the, and rolling. A rock and the rolling. ugliest orange. The ugliest orange. Well, speaking of the man. other ugly orange, we've got Matt Adams here, uh, who cannot help himself when it comes to college football talk. Matt Adams, pastor at First Presbyterian Church in Dillon. Good morning, listeners. And I'm going to be filling in this episode for my colleague, Derek Bright. People seem to get our voices confused a little bit. So this is Matt Adams, and this is Derek Bright. Excellent. Indistinguishable. And then we've got Nick Bullock, soon to be moving stateside from Stuttgart, Germany, to New Braunfels, Texas. Nick, how are you? Guten Tag, y'all. Glad to be on again. I love that. That fusion of German and Texas. It's great. Well, I, I, Nick is Nick is coming at us. I think he's on a ship right now, isn't he? He's like out in the middle of the Atlantic and they have amazing Wi-Fi and he's down in like the luggage bay of the ship and he's he's recording. That's how committed he is. He's on his way back to the States, mid-Atlantic right now. And I'm praying diligently that we don't hit any icebergs. I was going to say that you look exactly like Leonardo DiCaprio in his in his heyday. Well, but thank you, man. You're much more a- orthodox, though, theologically. You know, I'm thrilled. That that just made my day. As it should. So today, we're talking about question 14 in the larger catechism. And what question 14 does is it sort of tees the ball up for us, to use a sport ball analogy. And Sean will explain what that means later. But question 14 here asks about God's decrees. How does he execute them? How does God have those decrees which he has foreordained, whatsoever comes to pass before eternity, how are those executed in time? And question 14 gives us the answer. How doth God execute his decrees? God executed his decrees in the works of creation and providence, according to his infallible foreknowledge and the free and immutable counsel of his will. And so over the next couple of weeks, we're going to be talking about the execution of God's decrees. Today, we're going to stick with this sort of summary question and what your appetite for what's coming. But next week, we're going to talk about the work of creation, God's 
creation of the world, of angels, of man made in his image, and then also God's works of providence, how he maintains, sustains, and brings whatsoever comes to pass uh, together in such a way that it's for our good and his glory. So I'm going to kick it over to Sean first. Sean, tell us about either the decree, creation, providence, take your pick. Uh, what do you want to talk about? Well, it's a helpful question just because it it's, it frames nicely the way that the catechism is going to uh, progress uh, it, it, as it sets up for us um, in, as you already mentioned, spin questions 15, 16, and 17 discuss creation, and then questions 18, 19, and 20 discuss God's providence. And so this, <clears throat> excuse me, this summary question here, number 14, really is just the stage setter. How does God execute his decrees? The things that God has ordained and willed to happen. How do those occur? Well, it occurs in his works of creation and providence. Creation and providence. Creation, obviously, the things he created at the dawn of time. Uh, providence is how things shake out. That's a very technical terminology, but that's the way I've used it to explain, particularly uh, to some of our, our young children when we're going through the children's catechism. What is providence? Like, and we'll we'll get into more detail and specificity about that providence, but in the as a general reader's digest summary, it's how how things play out, how things shake out in this world as God has decreed and ordained them to happen. So because God has decreed perhaps you know, sunshine 75 degrees on Tuesday, providentially, that means that he has, that the weather patterns will be such, and the air pressure will be such, and the forecast will be such, and that the, the weather systems will align because he has decreed it to be so that there will be sunshine and 75 degrees on Tuesday, for example. That's just a, uh, and the, the confession and, and the catechisms both, they also, and we'll get into this on another occasion, I suppose, uh, talk about secondary causes or second causes. So God has ordained pleasant weather on Tuesday, uh, but that doesn't negate the use, his use of natural systems like weather patterns and air pressure and so forth. No, it rather establishes those secondary causes they serve to bring about his will. So anyway, we're, we're, we have some other items that we're going to get into as we think about here what's going on in question 14. It, it is a shorter question, uh, but it's deceptive in that regard because there is a good amount to talk about here. But we'll do our best to restrain ourselves so that we don't cheat too much because we really are going to set aside next week's episode to get into those uh, 15, 16, 17, talk about the doctrine of creation, and then the subsequent week after that, uh, 18, 19, and 20, to talk about the doctrine of providence. This one is just teeing it up. But we thought that it would be useful uh, amongst ourselves and perhaps hopefully for our listeners as well to talk about uh, broad contours of creation and providence, uh, the role of miracles. How do those play out? Uh, how do those factor into the the category of providence? Uh, what about uh, the things of the miraculous? Are they still for today? Uh, maybe even rehearse and uh, review things we've already thought about in terms of God's free will, his immutable and infallible foreknowledge, the distinction between foreknowledge uh, and predestination. Uh, let me go ahead and read to you, and then I want to kick it over to Matt because he has a, a helpful illustration for us. Uh, one of the verses that Voss suggests in his commentary, he gives a few brief comments on this question, but he also suggests uh, Ephesians 1, chap Ephesians chapter 1, verse 11, excuse me, Ephesians 1, verse 11. In him, it reads, that is in Christ, we have obtained an inheritance, 
having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. And so even there in that verse, as well as the language that Voss, the, the, the distinction that Voss makes and the distinction that I think the Westminster Standards make, that distinction between foreknowledge and predestination, uh, predestination applying to the salvific destiny, if you will, of God's elect, foreknowledge regarding to, or God's foreordination of all things that play out in creation and providence, but predestination more narrowly applies to the salvific destiny of God's elect. And so here in question 14, we're talking about that infallible foreknowledge and foreordination as God is working things out through his decrees in creation and providence. So there's something of a little bit of an intro. Let me turn it over to Matt, because I know he had something that, uh, by way of anecdote, yeah, you know, one of the things that this catechism question does it is it does not allow us to be uh, deists. Um, it, it, it helps us to understand that God has created the world and also is very active in the world by his providence. Um, and so as a uh, spiritual uh, or spiritually immature college student, my freshman year, um, we were taking part in a Bible study lesson and and my spiritual immaturity shines when when one of my friends, when we were talking about uh, creation and, and the Lord and doctrine of God things, uh, said, I, I like to picture God as something as a child getting a new fishbowl or fish tank. Because what the child does is he dumps the fish and then he just kind of stands back at a distance and he, he watches the fish move. He watches the fish swim. He even watches, you know, the algae eater eat the algae, but he isn't really doing anything inside the fishbowl, right? It's just a watching, it's a standing back. And, and, and at the, at the time I thought, you know, that's kind of fascinating. But then as I began to, to look at the scriptures and to think about reformed theology, which admittedly I was learning my freshman year of college, but but as I began to, to consider the activity of our God in creation and in providence, as this question points out to us, you have to, you have to say, like Dr. Doug Kelly says, that we're not Reformed deists. We have to, we have to um, acknowledge that our God is creator, but he's also the sustainer. Um, he creates and then he works. And, and so we have both of these activities being highlighted um, within, uh, within uh, this catechism question that is so helpful for us to remember that the, the majesty of our God and the goodness of God even, uh, he creates for uh, his people a world and he sustains a world for his people uh, at the same time. And so uh, he is very much active now, today, even as he was active at the beginning of time as he creates the heavens and the earth. And so I wanted to make that uh, distinction as well. We believe in the, the sovereign activity of our God right now, just as when he spoke the world into existence. And Matt, one of the things that this question is, is so wonderful is how succinct and comprehensive it is at the same time. Uh, because there's nothing that isn't covered by those categories of creation and providence. Everything that is, whether in now or in the future or in history, in this in this universe, is covered under those two categories of creation and providence. There's nothing that's outside of it. 
uh, the mountains and trees and rivers that he created at the dawn of time, that's under creation. Uh, the invention of the automobile, well, that's under providence. Uh, the fall of Rome, that's under providence. Uh, the cold that I might get next week, that's under providence. Everything falls under those categories of creation and providence. It's entirely comprehensive and yet succinct at the same time, which is a really helpful uh, trait or aspect, characteristic of, of our catechism. Yeah, I mean, Sean, you, you bring up a really good point um, because, you know, within this uh, doctrine of, of providence, and I don't want to get too far into that because we're, we're going to tackle this in much detail in a couple of weeks, but we have to understand that, that there's good providences and bad providences, right? Um, you know, but, but nothing is outside of the scope of God's sovereign power and his decreed will uh, for uh, his creation and especially his people. Uh, and, and so we have to really wrestle with uh, what the blessings of the Lord are in his providence, like something like miracles, that is just extraordinary or supernatural providences, or even hard providences, you know, colds and uh, diagnosis of, you know, diagnoses of cancer and, right. and things like that. It's all within the providence of our God. Um, and so that is why we are called often throughout the scriptures to to trust in him, right? Because uh, he's holding all things together. Yeah, and that's a good point to make. Uh, we had a, Nick and I had a professor in seminary who would make that point of sometimes in Reformed land, we will tend to, uh, when there's a happy or a pleasant circumstance, we'll say, ah, well, wasn't that providential? You know, um, I needed to talk with Mr. Jones later this week. And as I was running into the grocery store, I happened to bump into him and I was able to have that important discussion we needed to have. And so wasn't that providential? I ran into Mr. Jones. Well, yes, it was. Um, and again, not to be cynical or pessimistic or harsh in any way, but also that cancer diagnosis is providential. Uh, that seemingly untimely death is providential. It's a hard providence. It's not a pleasant providence, but it's important to for God's people to realize that everything is providential, not just the pleasant things, because all things are in God's hand and all things are under his superintendence and all things are of his ordaining because he does hold the entire cosmos in the palm of his hand. And so actually, even yeah. those hard providences coming from him, the fact that they're in his hand should bring us great comfort. Yeah, it's like that bad uh, Presbyterian joke, the Calvinist trips and falls, you know, on the sidewalk in the street. And he gets up and says, well, I'm glad that's over because that trip and fall was in in the decreed providences of God. Um, and that's a terrible joke. It's about <laughs> as funny as calling Presbyterians the frozen chosen. That's right. But nonetheless, I mean, there's some there's some 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 truth to that. Just like we're reverent in our worship, we believe that everything is uh, providentially decreed uh, by our God and his creation. So I think Nick has something he wants to say here. You know, I think whenever we talk about this uh, question, question 14, something that we ought to be reminded of is that this high theology, as we consider the character and the work of God, um, you know, we can often get lost in the clouds and feel like uh, the theology is it's transcendent, it's, it's beyond touching, it's um, not even experienceable, if that's even a word. Um, but what we're being told here is that the decretal power of God is something he works out. Yes, he worked it out in the creation of all things, all mm -hmm. things created out of nothing in the space of six days, by the word of his power. Um, and, and we rightly think of that as a past tense reality, something that none of us presently can say we experienced 
a time before it, uh, or even it whenever it was worked out in its potential and power. We are experiencing it now, uh, post-tense, and in its reality. Uh, but the idea of God's decrees and His providence, that as things are being carried out every day, every every hour that goes by, every um, entrance into the book of God's history of all of His creatures, uh, what we're being told here is that the Lord is in every way working out His predetermined will. Now, that's different than just saying God is sovereign. And I think I can illustrate this to you in, in, in a way. It's a broken analogy, but maybe it's helpful to you. Uh, we might be able to say that you know uh, a man who uh, goes to Ikea and um, buys a, a nice bookcase for his wife, uh, he's sovereign. Whenever he opens the box, takes all the parts out, throws it on the floor, uh, loses the instructions, and uh, over the next four weeks actually gets the thing built. He's sovereign. He did it. He did it his way. He was the guy holding the hammer. He worked it all out. Even whenever he messed things up, he had to, he fixed it himself. He was sovereign. Uh, but the predeterminate uh, decretal evidence would be the guy who opens the box, takes the well-appointed instructions in his hands, and builds it according to the purpose that it was designed for. And it's that idea, the design of God and his decreed will being worked out in our lives and in creation, um, that ought to be such a comforting thing because what it does, as Sean has already touched on, as, as Matt already has as well, is that there are no accidents. Uh, all things are purposeful. Everything, the good things, the bad things, the, the things that we would even think are indifferent and in between. Mm -hmm. uh, we don't have a God that lost the instruction manual. No, he's, he's working things out very particularly, and the Bible tells us why. It's for our blessing. It's for our good. It's for our keeping. It's for our encouragement. It's for our correction and training in holiness and righteousness. And that, that ought to be for us, it ought to be a tremendous um, comfort because it means our God is not a God of sovereign chaos. He's a God of controlled, decretal care. Can we just make a note that, that our, our dear friend Nick just said that a Kia furniture is nice. Um, he even implied that if you follow the instructions, it's easily put together. Both of those things have proven to be false in the Adams household. I just, I just want to put that out there. It's, <laughs> it's not nice because uh, you know it can't hold ten books, uh, and it's not easy even if you have the instruction manual to put together. Um, hey, listen, I, I, have, I, I, I have. I said it was a broken analogy. Okay. <laughs> Okay, I, I have firsthand knowledge about uh, the Bullock family's experiences at Ikea. I quite literally helped Nick pick out his couch when they no, first no, no, moved no. to Germany. Sean Morris chose our couches decretally. <laughs> he walked in and he said, Nick, there are your couches that are going to best serve your backside. So. <laughs> I, do, I do like their 35-cent coffee mugs, though. I will say that. And it was a very comfortable couch that served them well. And then Nick and I had a delicious lunch with those Swedish meatballs there in the Ikea cafeteria. And it was wonderful. Have I told you guys my theory that those, like all the furniture where they're like, you know, chair gnar, like you just put like a gnar on the end of something. Like, <laughs> I don't think that those are actual words. I think the Swedes, what they've done is they've just made a bunch of stuff up to get a kick out of watching the Americans try to pronounce it. I know it's a crazy theory. And it's totally unsubstantiated, but here I stand. We'll have to do a, a particular uh, spinoff episode 
with our friend Sebastian Bjernegaard, who is from Sweden, and we can we can get his take on the whole matter See, of that. That's not a name. Like, what did you just do there? I... All you got to do is make it Bjernegaardarag, you know, and then you've got the IKEA version. They'll think you're native. Absolutely. Hey, we cannot do that episode without Derek Bright being here to pronounce those names. Okay, oh, and we'll oh. have to make him introduce Sebastian just to hear him pronounce his last name. That'll be fantastic. Sebastian, oh, what's be your great. name? Yeah. Well, I, I tell y'all because. Uh, here at Westminster on Tuesday mornings at 6.30, we have what's called Coffee with Calvin. And our church has already worked through this group of about eight to 10 men. We've already worked through Calvin's Institutes one time. It took us a couple of years. But in a couple of weeks ago, we passed back through Calvin's Institutes, book one. And chapters 13 to 18 deal with this work of God's creation and creating of all things. And I, I really appreciated what Nick talked about, how God's plan invariably comes to pass exactly as he's ordained it. Uh, because I mean, you know how it is with us, y'all. I have lots of plans and I'm not always able to follow through on them or providentially, right? Uh, it just becomes impossible. The apostle Paul, he wanted to visit the church in Rome, but he was delayed. He wasn't able to do that for a time because he wanted to impart a spiritual gift to them, but the Lord delayed him. But God experiences no such delays. And so I think what a lot of time people think about, you know, Romans 8, 28, God works all things for good. They think of God working all things for good in the same way that you and I do, like serendipitously. Mm -hmm. uh, Bob Ross is famous for this. You know, he has a slip of the brush stroke. And then he says, oh, you know what? What a happy little accident. We're just going to have like another tree to, to keep this tree company, right? Not so with God. God never misses, uh, not a brushstroke. And I want to kick this to the group and see how you all have talked to folks in your congregation about this, because it's related to his decrees and the execution thereof. What do we do with that language where it says, you know, hey, Genesis 6, 6, God regretted or he repented that he made man. Or 1 Samuel 15, 11, where he says that God repented or that he was sorrowful that he made Saul king. How do we square this kind of language of God permitting or allowing something to happen that he later regrets? And mind you, I'm just kind of phrasing the question as it's asked to us, right? Yeah. How do we square that language in scripture with this question? Because it says that, man, everything happens according to infallible foreknowledge and the immutable counsel of his will. So God doesn't change. How do we square the language? What do y'all say? Yeah, and that really the question that lies behind that question, I think, in many cases, is does doesn't God change his mind? It says God repented. So doesn't God change his mind? Maybe he has regrets, he has buyer's remorse. Doesn't God change? How does that square with what you Calvinists are saying that God's immutable? Because immutable means cannot change, will not change, and cannot change. So is God immutable and unchangeable, or is he not? Which is it? Is it cool with everybody if I read something from Calvin's Institutes actually on this? Okay, great. Indeed. When, go ahead. When we came to this in Coffee with Calvin, uh, it is book one, chapter 17, sections 12 to 14, but I'm going to really zero in on question 13 here because Calvin helps us to understand what is called anthropomorphic or anthropopathic language in scripture because these are really good questions that people will have. They want to read their Bible literally. They want to take God's word at face value and say, I want to believe what the word says, but I can't square this with other parts of scripture. So how do we reconcile them? Calvin asks, what then is meant by the term repentance? 
the very same that is meant by the other forms of expression by which God is described to us humanly. Not that God is a human, but that God is explained in a humanly manner. Because our weakness cannot reach his height, any description which we receive of him must be lowered to our capacity in order to be intelligible. And the mode of lowering is to represent him not as he really is. That's the kicker. To represent him not as he really is, but as we conceive of him. So we ought not to imagine anything more under the term repentance than a change of action. Not a changing of God's mind, but a changing of his action. So God had chosen immutably and infallibly that Saul would be the king, but God had also chosen that after him, Saul would move off the scene, and then he would put the man after his own heart, David, on the throne in his place. So Calvin says, hence, because every change, whatever among men, is intended as a correction of what displeases, and the correction proceeds from repentance, the same term applied to God simply means that his procedure is changed, not that he changed for the same reasons that you and I do. When I was in Greenville, last thing here, we had a Westminster Seminary uh, PhD graduate, and he had this great one-liner, and I think he was channeling Calvin in section 13 here, where he said that God can will a change, right? God had willed that there would be a change of the kingship from Saul to David, mm -hmm. but God cannot change his will. That's in harmony with larger catechism 12 and 14, like we have here. So uh, how, how, do, how have you guys explained this to members of your congregation when they've come up and said, Hey, you know, um, I struggle with this pastor. Or maybe, you know, is it possible that God could change a little bit? Um, you, you know, that we, we're going to talk about this probably at some point, or maybe we haven't already, but his impassibility, right? That's where my mind was going is because we've touched on this briefly a few episodes ago about God being without body parts or passions. And when people hear that language, at least modern ears, when they hear passions, they think, oh, well, God is cold and heartless. He has no passions. Um, no, no. What that means is that God is not affected externally. He he is not forced to conform or forced to react or forced to think or forced to do. And of course, I'm speaking anthropomorphically by external stimuli. Any decision God makes, anything he wills is because of his own internal free counsel. He's not compelled by external stimuli to do anything. That's what passions means. Um, that's what it's getting at in the language, in that, uh, that the, uh, 17th century language that the, that the Puritans were thinking in, that compelled by an external stimulus to do or act in a certain way. Uh, God is under no such compulsion because he's God. Uh, that's what it means that he's without passions. Uh, the other thing that I think, and, and Spin, you were getting at this too, is that to put it in very basic language that I might say to my three-year-old is that God never says, oops. God is never caught off guard. God never says, whoops. I made an, I made an, uh-oh, I made a mistake. I mean, you were getting at it already with the, 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 the shifting of the kingship from Saul to David. I mean, think about, you know, for a long, long time, God operated under the Mosaic code with Levitical laws, the priestly system. With the coming of Christ, he no longer does. Was that a was that a stepping back and saying, "Oh, Plan B, let's shift gears here now"? I changed my mind. I don't, I don't like the Old Testament priestly system anymore. Let's go with this Jesus plan. No, no, God didn't change. He he'd always ordained it to be. He may have 
changed course or changed covenantal administration operation according to our human, mortal, fleshly, earthly senses and our perception of these things. It appears to be a shift and a, a change and a distinction to us, but God in and of himself did not change. He had always willed for this to be the case, that there was coming a time when he would move out of that Mosaic administration and move into the administration of the new covenant uh, with the coming of Christ. Uh, so there was no whoops. There was no, uh-oh, God had always ordained it. He didn't change his mind and do course correction uh, midstream. I, I think also one of the things I'd mentioned to folks is that language changes. That is, I'm thinking English language. And so we just have to be careful uh, with what we are reading into the language. And I'll stop with this and let some of the other guys uh, chime in. But, you know, I, I'm thinking of that verse that you mentioned already, Genesis 6, 6. So it's, we're coming up on the Noah narrative. Uh, people are doing lots of wickedness and sin. It's, it's grieving the Lord. So in the old King James version, Genesis 6, 6 reads this, and it repented the Lord that he had made man on the earth and it grieved him at his heart. And so when we hear that word repent to us, I think that implies a lot of uh-oh, I made a mistake and I need to change something now. I, I did an I did a whoops. I did a sin. I did a I did I I botched it and I need to change my course of action. I don't know that repented carried quite that same connotation uh in 1611 the way it does to our modern 21st century ears. Just by way of comparison, here's the Genesis 6:6 in the New American Standard. So the Lord was sorry that he had made mankind on the earth and he was grieved in his heart. Here it is in the ESV. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. And here it is in the New King James Version. And the Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth, and he was grieved in his heart. There is certainly, admittedly, some mystery to this that we cannot entirely wrap our moral minds around. But God was not compelled to feel sorry or compelled to regret or compelled to change his mind, again, by those external stimuli. He was moved in the free and immutable counsel of his own will to, and I'm using quotes here, feel, because I'm using it anthropomorphically, whatever he wills to feel. He was not compelled by Noah's, the generation of Noah's sins to feel a certain way. He's He feels a certain way toward them because he has willed to feel it. And by the way, as we get on into the New Testament, it talks about grieving the Holy Spirit, which, well, it just reinforces the fact that the Holy Spirit is a person as well as God because he can be grieved and God can be grieved. Is the Holy Spirit caught off guard by that, by the sins of these people in the book of Acts that it grieves him? Of course, the Holy Spirit's not caught off guard by that. Nevertheless, by their sin, he is grieved. And so there's that condescension of language. Uh, there is that that condescending to us to put it anthropomorphically so that our mortal finite minds can grasp something of it in this infinitely huge concept. But also we just need to pay attention to the way language, human language that is, evolves over time so that what a word may have meant in 1611 just carries a rather different connotation in 2023. I've monologued. Let me turn it over to the rest of y'all. You know, whenever we talk about this, we have to always be careful. You know, Sean's already touched on this, but just to reiterate this, uh, this is the Bible's language in describing God's inner life and his inner experience of his interaction with his creatures, uh, the transcendent to the finite. Um, and and it's a significant challenge. It's a hard thing uh, because you've got an eternal God who, who knows all things, who's from forever, uh, who's immutable, uh, who is in himself um, completely sufficient, uh, who can't be moved upon by any other thing. He, he has perfect happiness, perfect uh, joy, perfect anger, and all of those sorts of things. But nonetheless, this being 
has to communicate and accommodate his language and his actions even uh, to the mind of his of his created image bearers. Uh, so the Bible uses this sort of language all the time. Another one would be Exodus 32, 14, and the Lord relented from bringing the disaster that he had spoken of bringing on his people. And so this, again, is uh, describing this engagement of God to his creatures, uh, the transcendent to the finite, the sovereign uh, to ultimately the powerless. And, and it's a difficult thing. The Lord is trying to, uh, one, repent them, change their mind, change their course, uh, and so he's he's communicating. Uh, John Gill, whenever he comments on this particular passage, uh, he agrees with Calvin. Let me say it that way. He says, None of God's thoughts or the determinations of his mind are alterable, for the thoughts of his heart are to all generations. But he changes the outward dispensations of his providence or the methods of his acting with men, and this being similar to what they do when they repent of anything, who alter their course. Hence, repentance is ascribed to God, though, properly speaking, it does not belong to him. And so there again, it's the, it's the focus on the change uh, or, or the, the direction change uh, actions of God that, uh, that, that Gill's expressing here, uh, very much in line with Calvin. And just to give another quick example, I mean, I, I'm not trying to be silly here, but I'm, I'm using this example just to show us how much language shifts when we're thinking about what repented meant in the King James versus how we tend to read it today. Another great example is Philippians 1 verse 8. Now, if you read that in the old King James version, Philippians 1 verse 8 says, For God is my record, how greatly I long after you in the bowels of Jesus Christ. That, that, that word bowels has a rather different connotation for us here in the year 2023. But if you move forward into the New American Standard, for example, Philippians 1.8, For God is my witness, how I long for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. So words change, connotations change. We have to just be aware of those connotations and idiosyncrasies <laughs> over the course of 400 years and and not, uh, what's the word, N not uh, a chronologically backward impose uh, something uh, uh, upon it. Anachronistically, there's the word. Not anachronistically impose our sensibilities onto a word that makes sense to us, but would not have necessarily carried the same weight way back when. I know one of the things we want to think about, and I'll kick this over to the group, is that what about miracles? Where do miracles fit in? We know we saw miraculous events in the Old Testament. We saw miraculous events in the New Testament. Now, the Westminster Standards come from a, what we would say, classically cessationist vantage point, in terms of miracles today, maybe that's something we want to touch on briefly, but uh, where do miracles factor in? Are they part of God's creation and providence? What category would we file them under? What do we do with miraculous things today? Do they happen? Don't they happen? Maybe we need to slightly tease that out and nuance that a little bit. What do y'all think? You know, I think that we could first say that we classify it or file it under uh, the Lord's providence. Um, it would just be an extraordinary or a supernatural providence. Um, we know, as as already been mentioned on this uh, episode, that God has uh, put into place these ordinary patterns, um, these common graces, we might say, of uh, of weather, of the rotation of the earth, and even our cycling about the sun, all of those things are ordinary. Um, the rain falling, the sun shining, 
um, morning and evening. All these things are ordinary. The the common graces of the Lord working through uh, doctors and, and medicines uh, to address our physical ailments and diseases. Um, but at the same time, uh, our God uh, is so active within the world and, and, and so sovereign uh, in his decreed wills that uh, in his decreed will, that's not plural, uh, in his decreed will, uh, that that he at any time he sees fit can work uh, beyond uh, or even against uh, his ordinary uh, providence. And so um, we still believe in in miracles that our Lord can do what he wants to do, uh, even when it seems impossible to man. Um, he can answer prayers, the prayers of, of healing. You know, I, I think of James chapter five, when the exhortation is for, uh, for the people of God, when they're uh, uh, sick to call upon the elders of the church and the elders come to anoint with oil and to pray. We've heard great stories throughout the history of uh, the church where God has granted uh, those prayers to be answered very, um, we might even say supernaturally. Um, and, and yet they are the decreed providence of God. Um, and, and so it's, it's not as if, you know, we might even say, you know, it's not as if we're dealing with some sort of changing of mind, right? Um, but he's willed for a supernatural change. Um, we can, we can keep it right along the lines of this idea of repenting. He is willed for a change to happen. Um, and it's beyond our explanation and it's beyond our human reasoning, but but God has done so according to his mere uh, good pleasure. And so, um, you know, it, it's, it's, a, it's a glorious thing that is beyond our, our human understanding. It, it looks a little bit different than, than what it looked like in, in the Old Testament or, or maybe even the New. Um, we don't have uh, apostles going around raising the dead. Um, you know, the, the lepers being suddenly cleansed, uh, but it's not beyond our God to perform miracles uh, today. Yeah, the I'll just read this real quick and then and then turn it over. But yeah, chapter five of the Westminster Confession on Providence of Providence reminds us that chapter five, section three, God in his ordinary providence maketh use of means yet is free to work without above and against them at his pleasure. So as we were mentioning earlier at the beginning of the episode, we're not reformed deists. Uh, we are unabashedly supernaturalist. Uh, this is a supernatural world. Our God is a supernatural God, and he is able to do supernatural things according to his good pleasure. So the Elijah raised the widow's son, miracle in the Old Testament. Jesus Christ rose from the dead, miracle in the New Testament. But those happily file under the category of God's providence. And I think even today we'd say that uh, do we believe in miracles? Do we believe in the supernatural? Well, God makes dead sinners come to life. He takes away hearts of stone and grants hearts of flesh. That seems pretty supernatural to me. It may not be quite the same spectacular visual thing of Jesus raising Jairus's daughter, but God still is at work in a supernatural way uh, by his grace. Yeah. In our ordination exams, we were asked, you know, tell us what you believe concerning the work of the Holy Spirit? And it's kind of a loaded question because they want to determine, do you believe in the continuation of the extra ordinary gifts 
of the New Testament. And if you say, no, I don't believe in the work of the Spirit, then somebody's going to come and say, well, you don't believe in regeneration? You know, the quickening of a dead sinner, the taking out of the heart of stone, giving the heart of flesh. So if you are a PCA ordinand and I ask you that question, you know what I want to hear. But the reason we would say that God doesn't perform miracles mediated through human agents like the apostles as he did in the New Testament is because he no longer needs to. Uh, because the foundation of the church laid by the apostles has been laid already. And so the gifts that they used for that purpose were laid aside with them. And, you know, I kind of liken the miracle working of the Old Testament. And we were just teaching our middle school students last night for our Wednesday night program through the Westminster Confession of Faith uh, on the covenants of man and how in the new covenant, we have less numerically outward types or outward ceremonies and material objects that we incorporate into our worship that the Old Testament saints did. And the question is why? Because as Galatians 4 says, those things were given to the Old Testament saints in their infancy. Israel was like a small child under a tutor, under the law. And so these miracles were instructive in the same way that we instruct our small children, our four and five-year-olds, very differently than we will instruct them when they're 18, 19, 20 years old, right? So these miracles were like the pictures in a picture book that we read to our children, instructing them and teaching them what is true. But once they reach a certain level of literacy, we're not still reading Goodnight Moon, even though I love that book, right? So we have no more need for the miracles because that to which the miracles pointed, namely the divine identity of the theanthropic person of our Lord Jesus Christ, we have no more need. Those miracles were revelatory, and we have the fullness of God's revelation delivered to us through Jesus Christ and entrusted to us by the apostles in recorded scripture. So that's, I mean, just very brief, uh, very brief soundbite of what I tell folks who are coming to a church like ours and want to know what we believe about the Spirit. Of course, we believe God is able to do all his holy will, but it is his holy will that now the way that he is going to convince and convert sinners and the way he's going to build his people up in holiness and comfort is through the word, the sacraments, and prayer. Less outward pomp and ceremony, sure, but greater simplicity, clarity, and we just get that straight line to Jesus, unmistakably so. Yeah, Hebrews chapter 2, verse 4 kind of gets at that as well. I mean, that's, the miracles serve their purpose, and that's that's exactly what you were just saying, Sven. Yeah. Friends, on behalf of all of us here at Larger for Life, we'd like to thank you for joining us on this episode. We've enjoyed considering the wonderful question that we have today that has directed our thoughts to ponder the character and works of God that he has planned in his decrees. We hope that you've been as encouraged as we have, and we'd like to invite you to join us again next week as we take up questions 15, 16, and 17 on the doctrine of creation. Till then, God bless. You have been listening to Larger for Life, 
a podcast on the Westminster Larger Catechism brought to you by the Blue Ridge Institute and Birmingham Theological Seminary. For more information about this podcast, please visit our website on Podbean at largerforlife.podbean.com where you can subscribe to the show in the podcast platform of your choice and browse past episodes. You can also follow us on Twitter or Facebook. On Twitter, you can follow us at Larger for Life Podcast, and on Facebook, you can follow us at facebook.com slash largerforlife. Be sure to tune in next time and join us again at Larger for Life. <laughs>